Well, good morning. You guys doing good today? It's a wonderful, wonderful song. It's a, as they say, an oldie but a goodie. How great is our God, amen? Well, I've been given the privilege of um, being in the pulpit for the next three weeks. Uh, Rod and uh, Faith and their family, they're going to be traveling over the next couple weeks. Rod right now is in uh, Council Bluffs uh, at, a, at a conference. He's speaking three times today, so be in prayer for him. So he does that. And then I think they're headed to Oregon soon after that. So um, uh, be, in, be in prayer for them that they would have safe travels uh, wherever they go. And uh, you're stuck with me the next three weeks. So I hope you're excited. I'm excited. Uh, I've known for a while that I was going to have three weeks in a row, and as, as you guys know, I think I've said, I've said this before, but that's one of, the most, uh, one of the most excruciating things to me is trying to decide, what am I going to do in three weeks? Do I start a series? Do I start a new book? As you know, we wrapped up the book of Jonah um, a couple months ago, and so I'm thinking and contemplating and trying to pray over, what, what do I want to do? I have this, this wonderful opportunity, and in the midst of deciding this, I, I read this book, and to be frank, this book just kind of hit me over the head with how convicting it was for my own heart. It challenged me, it convicted me, it caused me to examine myself, especially as a leader in the church, and consequently, th- th- this is a topic that's been on my heart and mind for a little over a month now. So I thought it would be appropriate to share with you um, on that topic over the next couple of weeks. So that being said, please make your way in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The topic that's been in my heart and on my mind has been the topic of love. You know this chapter. This is a popular chapter in all of scripture. Everyone knows it. Most of you can quote parts of it. But I want to slow down over the next three weeks and just think about what it means to be a loving Christian. So let's just read. I'm going to do this the next three weeks. Let's read the entirety of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, I'll start in verse 1, and let's read through to the end. Verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, 
is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did, did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but, when, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Before we dive into the text, and by the way, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 this morning. Verses 1 through 3 this morning, I've entitled this message, The Absolute Necessity of Biblical Love. But before we dive into the text, I want to press something into your mind right out of the gate, right off the bat. This is it. It's the mandate for biblical love. From the very beginning, this charge... To love one another has been given to Christians. It's been given to, to you and I. Jesus says to his disciples in John 13, verses 34 and 35, just listen to it. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Somewhere else he says, uh, he's in a conversation with Pharisees and they say, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... Depend the whole law in the prophets. Another scripture, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Colossians, the book we're studying. Chapter 3. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 1 Corinthians 16, same book that we're in, let all that you do be done in love. All that you do should be characterized by love. So, so let it be known right out of the gate that love is integral to what it means to be a Christian. It's the very DNA of Christians. In fact, one of the first 
Actually, the first fruit of the Spirit that is named in Galatians 5 is love. That's something that the Spirit produces when someone is born again. And let me say this. When a church is operating at its peak, love is evident. It's noticeable in the church. One should be able to walk into the doors of this church and notice love for one another. Whatever good things may be true of any given church, if this single element is missing, then that church is failing to be what Christ calls it to be. I could go on and on in the New Testament and show you commandment after commandment, description after description that pertain to this single thing, love. A church might have accurate theology. A, a church may be mature in its understanding and discernment. A church may have a robust worship team. A church may have great financial resources. They may have great teachers. But if they lack love, they are failing to be what they need to be. So I hope you feel the weight of that. I, I hope you don't hear me placing that on your conscience or on your mind. But what I hope you hear is the Bible calls you, if you're a Christian, to, to be characterized by love. So if that's the call on your life and my life, then uh, I, I think it would be good to have a clear picture of what love is. And thankfully, in 1 Corinthians 13, biblical love comes into its sharpest focus. It's, it's abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 13, perhaps more so than any, in any other portion of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, no, is not just for weddings. Uh, I have read 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings. Nothing wrong with that. Don't hear me disparaging that. But you should understand that Paul is not writing this to be read at a wedding. He's, he's writing this to instruct a church who is struggling in this very area. It's the call on their life in Corinth. So what I hope comes into view as we study this over the next few weeks is, is what we are to be towards one another here at Countryside. Those people you're sitting by right now, you're rubbing shoulders with every Sunday. How are we to interact with one another? What should be driving our interactions? And I hope that you see that love is what should be driving us day in and day out, week in and week out. So I need to lay some groundwork. I want to catch you up to speed on what's happening in 1 Corinthians because it's, it happens to be very pertinent to what he's talking about in the early part of the chapter of chapter 13. Uh, chapter 13 comes sandwiched in between two chapters that are all about spiritual gifts. Okay, chapter 13, if you were, were to read it in isolation, you wouldn't pick this up. But chapter 13 doesn't just kind of drop out of heaven and land in our Bibles. There is a, there is a context here that we got to know. It's about spiritual gifts. Uh, we're not, it won't be necessary to really uncover everything in these, these chapters, chapters 12 and 14. 
But that's the context in which chapter 13 sits. It's all about spiritual gifts. And what's going to help us additionally is knowing that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, you learn some, some things about this church in Corinth. Some, some pitfalls that they're having. Some persistent problems in this church that Paul loves so dearly. And one of the main things that you learn that is pertinent to our passage, and you have to lock this in your head with our, with our discussion today, is that this church struggled with spiritual pride. In fact, if you were to take an afternoon and just read the book of 1 Corinthians, you would see this sort of language over and over and over again that this church of Corinth had an arrogance problem. I mean, they, they loved themselves their own knowledge, their own spiritual giftedness. They love their ability to, to speak fluently and their superiority in oratory and philosophy. As you know, they, they even segregated themselves based on uh, their favorite teacher, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. They were sort of teaming up and dividing up. And, and, and Paul says, well, is Christ divided? No, we're one body Paul and Apollos are nothing but servants of one Christ. And the point that Paul is trying to make is, is hey, even Paul and Apollos, these people you admire and respect, we're nothing. And so you're thinking of yourself as something, but Paul and Apollos are nothing. And in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, here's what he says. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may, know, you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. And then this striking verse in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This arrogant church who loved their giftedness, loved themselves, boasted in the wrong things, Paul looks at him and says, why do you boast? You've, you've been given everything you have, from financial resources to your gifts and abilities, naturally, your spiritual gifts and abilities. You've been given all of it. Why, why do you have this pride that characterizes you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And given what we know about the city of Corinth, this makes sense. This falls directly in line with who they were. Corinth was this city that, that found self-exaltation. I mean, not just the church there, but this whole city found self-exaltation, self-distinction as a thing to be desired. They, they placed this high premium on accomplishment and social status. Self-display, prominence, and boasting was their top priority. Coursing through the veins of this city was everything from sports to street side philosophizing um, to, to theater. And unfortunately, unfortunately, religion got mixed into this bag of, of ways in which you could exalt yourself. Religion and cults were useful in this city so that they could provide some sort of sense of well-being and a boost to one's ego. That's what he's dealing with. 
It's in this atmosphere that gives rise to this pride in spiritual giftedness. That's what Paul is dealing with all the way throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, let me quickly address this idea of spiritual gifts. We can't ignore it in this passage because we are, we're, we're going to be dealing with it. Here's a quick word regarding spiritual gifting. I'll give you three main really quick points. I can't go into depth. I don't have time for that. But here's the three, uh, really kind of three things you need to know about spiritual gifting. The first thing you need, you need to know is that every born-again believer, every Christian has been given at least one gift, one spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4.10 and 1 Corinthians 12.7 both say the same reality that each believer has received at least one spiritual gift. So if you're in this church, you're a true believer, you have been given some spiritual gifting. Second point is that gifts, spiritual gifts, are divinely distributed. 1 Corinthians 12.11 But one and the same Spirit works all these things, all these gifts, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. In other words, you've been given a gift and you don't have a gift receipt. You can't take it back to God and say, oh, I'll have another. You've been given what you've been given by God. It's divinely distributed. God fit his body, his local body in, uh, together in such a way that some people have this gift, some people have this gift. And then the purpose of your spiritual gift. This is the third point that I want to make about spiritual gifting. The purpose of your spiritual gift is to edify God's church. These are gifts given by God for God's church. And church, this is such an important point for this passage. This is a critical point for this passage. Because this is the problem that Paul is dealing with in Corinth. Look at, go back to chapter 12 just briefly. Look at verse 4. He's in this conversation about spiritual giftedness. And he says, listen to the language of what the purpose is for your gifts. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given, the, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. See that? Your gifts are given to you for the common good. Not for self-adulation or self-promotion. It's for the common good. Skip over to chapter 14. There's three places in here that he says basically the same thing. Verse 3 of chapter 14. He says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets 
so that the church may receive edifying. So whatever your thoughts are about tongues and prophesying, we'll deal with that. But these are gifts given to this local body in Corinth. And he says, those gifts are for the edification and the building up of the body. Verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound, why? For the edification of the church. And then chapter 14, verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So God has graciously blessed this Corinthian church with spiritual gifts. And in turn, there were some who were proud of their giftedness. And there were some, as you read in chapter 12, who wanted more. They wanted to be something else. They wanted their giftedness to be in other areas. They looked over their shoulder at others in the congregation who had been given wonderful, powerful gifts, and they were just saying, I want that. And what that's a symptom of, church, is an inverted view of gifts. These people inverted the real purpose of their spiritual giftedness. It became about them, and it wasn't about anyone else. It wasn't about the common good. So in chapters 12 and 14, Paul is just driving this point home that our spiritual gifts are given to us to build up the church. That's the purpose. That's the divine purpose. They're not to be inward focused. So Paul is attacking this. He's trying to shake the selfishness out of this congregation. Why? Because you cannot simultaneously be consumed with yourself and love others the way that you should love others. That's oil and water. Those things do not mix. That's, that's incompatible. A love for distinction, a love for self is incompatible with a love for others. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. And so that's the context in which 1 Corinthians 13 falls. And what he does is carries over this topic of spiritual giftedness into, into chapter 13. Before we jump in to verse 1, it's important to note that a few of the gifts that he mentions are unique to the time period in which he was writing. In other words, he's going to bring up the gift of speaking in tongues and languages of men. He's going to talk about prophecy. And I'm going to develop this point more thoroughly in a few weeks. But Paul is going to mention these gifts, both of which we believe as a church have went out of use after the first century church was established. They have ceased or no longer in function in today's church. The term for this position is called cessationism. That's what our church holds to. Now, that being said, I also happen to believe that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with us on this. So we should exercise our position with charity, no doubt. But Paul brings up these gifts to the church in Corinth. And you need to know where I stand, where our church stands on this matter. So within that mind, what Paul gives us in the first three verses are really three hypothetical scenarios. There are three hypothetical scenarios that point out the absolute necessity of biblical love in God's church. 
the absolute necessity of biblical love. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul begins with this sort of self-betrayal, this, this hypothetical scenario. And he kind of works from the actual to the hypothetical. Here's what he says. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels. So Paul starts with this gift of tongues. Biblically, let me zoom out for a second. Biblically, every time the gift of tongues is mentioned, the gift of tongues is not some angelic language. When you trace the gift of tongues throughout the New Testament, these are always real human languages. My, uh, my, my former theology professor, uh, Dr. Matt Wehmeyer, here's what he says about it. He said, understood biblically, the gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to speak in authentic human language never previously studied or learned by the tongue speaker. That's what the gift of tongues is, biblically speaking. So what Paul means by tongues of men is really just the normal usage of this gift, the normal understanding of this gift as found in the New Testament. All legitimate practice of the gift of tongues in the Bible were known human languages. But then he goes to like the other extreme. So, hey, he says, if I could speak in tongues of men, if I had this most desired gift to speak in, in, in foreign tongues that I've never studied, and then, and of angels, if I could speak in tongues of angels too, he's exaggerating the point. This is a hypothetical. He paints this picture. He says, imagine that I possess this God-given gift. I could, I could speak in the normal uses of, usage of tongues, and then additionally and more impressively, I could, I could speak with angels. He's just trying to build up this picture of the most gifted guy that he could be in this area. By the way, we, we find no real mention of angelic languages being used by humans in this manner in the New Testament. That's, that's one of the arguments against tongues still being in operation. It's because most times when you see churches that are, that are practicing the gift of tongues, what you're seeing are, are these languages that are indiscernible. They're not human languages. And, and, and there's no interpreter, therefore. And so it's out of step with the New Testament picture of what tongue speaking is. So Paul's point is not to say this is a thing, but he, his point is to say, if this were a thing, if this guy existed, the Corinthians would flock to this guy. They would want to be this guy. They would desire those gifts. But then he delivers the crucial point. He said, if I have these gifts, what's he say? But do not have love. But do not have love. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let's say the point, point's rather easy to understand. It doesn't matter how gifted you are in this area, Corinth. It doesn't matter all the, all the cool gifts that you have and all these cool gifts that you desire. You desire them for selfish purposes. You lack love. 
He says, be as gifted as you want. If you lack love, it's meaningless. If you lack love, you achieve not a little bit. You achieve nothing. You edify, you build up, you encourage nobody with your gift. And this was crucial for this Corinthian church to hear. Again, they're all about themselves. They're all about how these gifts that God gave to them could promote themselves. How, how they could have distinction. How they, could, how they could be seen by others as having been given more gifts. And, and it's all self-interest. But they lacked the love necessary to make their gifts truly useful and impactful in the body of Christ. This is the very situation he rebukes in chapter 14. Corinthians were not concerned about the edification of the church. They, they were interested in self. Their gift aimed inwards and not outwards. So Paul says the necessary component to make you truly useful in the church, the thing that is a non-negotiable to make you useful in the church, Corinthians, is love. Without love, you're about as spiritually useful as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Church, if I walked over, there's some cymbals, right? I'm tempted to do it. I'll walk over right now and grab a drumstick and just hit it until you're annoyed. All right? I, I could do it. Would that encourage you if I did that? Would it build you up if I just went over there and as I was preaching, I'd No. You would, you would be annoyed out of your mind and I might not have a job tomorrow. That's the picture he paints. That's what using your gifts apart from love results in. It's not a matter of how spectacular or, uh, or how special you are in terms of your giftedness or your service for the church. If you don't have love, it's pointless and annoying. And he continues the point in verse 2. He uses the second hypothetical. So the first hypothetical is that he could speak in tongues of men, tongues of angels. And then he goes to a second scenario. Read that with me. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Let's pause there. Paul encourages this church to prophesy. His problem isn't with the gifts of prophecy in this context. It's not his beef. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Verse 39, uh, therefore my brother desire earnestly to prophesy, so it's not a problem with the gift. Essentially, he says in those chapters that prophecy done rightly should build up because you're, there, there's more revelation, there's more kind of teaching that goes on. Now the gift of prophecy is another gift that I find to be unique to this time period. It's no longer, it's no longer functioning in our church today. Again, we'll get to this in a few weeks. But the biblical picture of prophecy it, it, in, in the Old Testament and New Testament picture is that a prophet better be batting a thousand. Because if he's not, he's not a prophet. And anyone that you see today claiming to have prophetic revelations and prophesy, they are 
all missing at some point. None of them are 100% spot on. But he says in this context, desire that you may prophesy. And and, and in in verse 2, imagine that I have this gift of prophecy. And then to the extent, here's how I take it, to the extent that I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Paul says, I've been given this gift, and, I, and, and that's a, it's a real gift in this context, but hey, now I understand all mysteries. This is hypothetical, remember? All knowledge. Therefore, every fact out there there is to know, imagine that I know that. I mean, I've got the brains. God has gifted me in wonderful ways with divine revelations, all mysteries. It's all, it's all comprehensive, all mysteries, all knowledge. Now, quite obviously, this is hypothetical because there is no one on earth who possesses this level of knowledge. You know that. I don't have to say that. But Paul wants you to imagine this situation where it's true. And he says, even with all the knowledge one can muster up, if I don't possess a loving heart, it's nothing. It's nothing. Thomas Schreiner has a wonderful comment In his book on spiritual gifts, which I would recommend, by the way, if you're seeking clarity with spiritual gifts. Here's what he says about this particular passage. He says, sometimes we think people are spiritually mature if they are intellectually gifted and know a lot about theology and the Bible. But knowing truth without living the truth is worthless before God. People may be impressed, but God is not. The Lord never sacrifices truth at the expense of love. Truth matters. But God has no regard for truth that is not accompanied by love. Too many who are faithful in their theology are known for having a critical and loveless spirit. And that spirit repels people from their theology. I would say that's true. I would say that we are tempted to see people even in our own church who have this abundant knowledge of the Bible, and we think that's tantamount to spiritual maturity. And this passage says otherwise. In fact, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, knowledge puffs up. It's got this tendency to puff people up. See this when, when people get pumped out of seminary all the time. We think we know everything. We we, we tend to think we know how the whole world works. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, he says in verse 1 of chapter 8. It's true. Spiritual maturity does not mean you know a lot about the Bible. It includes that. If you lack love, you can't say someone is truly living as they should in full maturity. And he says again here, if I have all faith, again, the comprehensive language, I have all knowledge, I understand all mysteries, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains. That strong of faith. I have all the faith that one could have, one human could have. All the faith. I need no more. I could, I, I could remove a mountain, similar to the analogy that Jesus used. But he says, but, it, but do not have love. I'm nothing. Church, if you have love, it's not matter how much you know. It's not matter how much you've learned. It does not matter how well you can debate the finer points of 
theology. If you lack love, you lack something crucial to your usefulness in the body. Now, again, the mistake would be to think that extraordinary levels of intellectual giftedness, smarts, faith is all you need to effectively, effectively contribute to God's cause and God's church. That couldn't be further from the truth. Love is the necessary component. It's the absolute necessity. And then he moves to a third hypothetical, a third example to illustrate the point even further. Look at verse 3. It says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, It profits me nothing. This third verse, Paul imagines another scenario in which one has given up all his possessions for others. We have generous people in this church. There are generous, in my experience, in church life, not just in this church, every church I've been a part of, there are generous people. Generous people. Acts of kindness and benevolence. Giving, people giving the clothes off their back, willing to do so at least. These acts that are outwardly admirable. But if it lacks love, it lacks the thing that makes it truly valuable spiritually. The problem here is not giving. By the way, in Romans chapter 12, Paul mentions giving as a gift. He throws it in the category of you can have the gift of giving. So he's still dealing with these gifts problem is not in the giving. The problem is that we can give to others in a way that builds up ourselves, can't we? We, we can do things with, with, with the outward look of sacrifice, the outward look of, of, of real love. But if what's behind the doors of our hearts is self-admiration, I want people to see how much I gave, the Lord looks down upon that. I read a person point out the, the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5. You guys know the story well. They sold a piece of land and gave only some of the price to the church. They passed it off as something uh, that they, you know, they gave all the price, all the proceeds went to the church. That's how they kind of painted the picture. They made it look as if they'd given all of it, but they didn't really give all of it. They were, they were giving for selfish motives. They were giving to be seen by others. They were giving out of a want for recognition. And as you know, the story goes, both were struck down by God. Both. And then he says, so, so imagine in verse, in verse 3 of chapter 13, he says, imagine I give up all my belongings. And then on the extreme end, as he's doing, he's working from the actual to the hypothetical. On the stream, extreme end, if I were to give up my own body to be burned. Extreme sacrifice. Now, of course, most, most people believe this is martyrdom. Dying for the faith, of course, this is something that is considered as noble, even in this context, early church context. We, we tend to memorialize, and, and they tended to memorialize those who would die for the faith. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You know, this is kind of the language he's, he's getting at. If I were to deliver my body up to be burned, something that all people admire and respect, some, you know, if I were a martyr and people memorialized me, celebrated me, thought of me as a, as a hero of the faith, We have these multiple examples of martyrdom in Scripture. You have John the Baptist. You have Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7. You have the martyrs being honored in Revelation. The Bible seems to indicate that martyrdom is a noble thing. But what does Paul say? Paul says this noble thing, if it's done without love, if that becomes about you, your glory, your preeminence, what's the outcome? It profits you nothing. It profits you nothing. You've died for nothing. Spiritually speaking. So Paul uses these three examples, these three illustrations, these three scenarios. And he could have used more. He could have used more. His point is, is not about that. He's, he's really using various examples to make one singular point. He's trying to hammer home to the Corinthian church that no matter what they do in the way of outward spiritual service, doesn't matter what you do. If it's done without love, it's nothing. Whether you speak in tongues, prophesying, giving to others, or put it in our context, teaching, making dinner for someone, serving someone in a, in a much needed way, if you're doing these things without love, they're in vain. Again, the problem is not with the gifts. The problem is your heart. The problem is lack of love. It does not matter how gifted you are or how charismatic you are with people, how, how well you interact with people, how knowledgeable you are about the Bible, how strong and interesting you are as a person. None of it matters if it's done without this heart of love for one another. Because if you lack love, you lack everything. Your service is empty. D.A. Carson, one theologian, coined, uh, coined a term in this passage. He says it's, it's divine mathematics. And he counts five gifts in these. That's why he says this. But he says these are divine mathematics where five minus one equals zero. Take all the gifts you want. If it's empty of love, it's zero. Stack up your gifts. Stack up your acts of service. Stack up your effort your generosity, put your spiritual resume out there, and if it lacks the one core element of love, it's all been in vain, every bit of it's been nullified. You say, well, doesn't it do some good? Even if my motives are selfish and inward? No. Void of love, it's at zero. That's the point of this passage. So as I consider this, as I consider this passage in 1 Corinthians I'm struck with the question, what are my motives for doing what I do in the church? Even what I'm doing right now, in this moment, what are my motives? Do I, do I love these people I'm looking at right now? Or is this about how good of a sermon I can preach? Is this about how well I can do and how many pats on the back I could possibly get after this? 
Is it about what people could say about me? I'm using myself as an example here. Or is it because I truly love you? We have to examine our motives for our service in God's church. That's the point. Why do you do what you do in the church? What compels you to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? That is the question that really took hold of me recently. This is the strong temptation for anyone in the pastor. We, we want our ministry to be a trophy of how great we are. We are always tempted to, towards a desire to be recognized. And I've heard a, a pastor named Jerry Rag, you guys may know him, I've heard him say, we are tempted to want to etch our names into the kingdom wall. It's good imagery. We want to be known. We want to leave our mark. So, so what do you do with verses 1 through 3? Here, here's what you should do. You, you should consider the ways that you serve within this church. And I don't have anyone in mind, so don't feel like I'm attacking anyone, okay? I don't have anyone in mind. But here are some examples. Maybe you serve our kids in Awana. Maybe you make coffee on Sunday morning. Maybe you work in the kitchen. Or maybe you teach a Sunday school class. Maybe you provide meals for someone. Maybe you serve in the nursery. Nursery. Maybe you serve in children's church. Maybe you disciple someone over coffee. Maybe you preach and you teach. Whatever it is that we do, we must examine our motives. We must examine our, our why. Why are we doing what we're doing? Because it's it, it can get as simple as it's either to build up the church or it's to build up ourselves. God's vision for the church is not that we would be a group of people serving others for our own end, but that we would be full of love, that we would do what we do for others in order to do them deliberate spiritual good. That's why you love, to do others good. I want to remind you of a passage that many of us know well in the, in the book of Revelation. Rod mentions it often. It's Christ talking to the seven, seven different churches. He rebukes some of them. There's a couple that he encourages. And then there's the church of Ephesus. And they get a scathing Rebuke. It's a fascinating passage. Because on the outside, Ephesus is a model church. They don't tolerate evil. They push out these false apostles. They're discerning. They're persevering. There's no indication that their doctrine has veered at all. They seem to still be orthodox. But the Lord says this. There's one thing. One thing I have against you. What is it? They lacked love. You left your first love. You left the love you had at first. 
I know some people think this is love for God. Some people say, well, this is love for others. He doesn't say, does he? He said, the love that characterized you at first, Ephesus, it's gone. It's gone. It's a tragedy. For that reason, he says, I will remove your lampstand, Ephesus. In other, way, in other words, my blessing will no longer be on you, Ephesus, unless you repent. Church, I, I hope you're concerned with how God would view our church. I, I hope you're concerned more than how the community, obviously, the community, we want to keep up a testimony, yes, but ultimately, I hope that you are concerned and driven by how God would view Countryside Bible Church. Does he see when he looks at us, church of love towards one another? We must walk in love if we're going to have a church that pleases Christ. Christ's desires that on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, our love for one another would be noticeable. Noticeable. That's his desire. That's God's will for us. That's our calling. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I'd like a clearer picture of love. You've said a lot about love, but what is love? I mean, is, is love just a feeling? Is it just doing? What are we talking about here? It's a good question. Hold that question until next week. <laughs> Stay tuned. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for this, this passage. It strikes to the heart of what our service is to be in the context of the local church. It, it causes us to examine our hearts, our motives for service. Lord, may we be a church who recognizes that love is the absolute desire of Christ for his people, that they would love one another. So Father, I, I pray for this church. I pray that they would be driven by this one thing, that no matter what they do in this congregation, that whether they're serving dinner or whether they're teaching a Sunday school class or they're serving with the kids in Awana, whatever it, would, it, it looks like, let it be done, not for self, but for the sake of others, because we love the people we serve. I pray that your word would strike our hearts with this reality. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.